can turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Some of you know, um, I, I spent some time pastoring a, a small international church in Prague and at Czech Republic, and it was really one of the best experiences of my life. One of the things I loved about it was we had this really just super rich mosaic of people worshiping with us at that church. We had, in any given worship service, there would be uh, children and retirees. We had every continent represented. Uh, We had people who, uh, about 50% English was their first language. About 50% English was a second language or a third language or a fourth language. Um, We had heads of missions agencies who would come, and we had atheists who would show up just because they wanted to hear English spoken. We had conservative Presbyterians, and we had Southern Baptists, and we had liberal Anglicans. We had, we had this whole spectrum. And, you know, you may ask yourself, well, why did, why did so many different kinds of people come? Well, obviously, you know, the atheists just came. Uh, they didn't care what was being spoken from up front, but they wanted to interact with English speakers. Uh, but the rest realized that, you know, they just wanted to worship. And they loved Jesus Christ, and we were really the only game in town in English. And Czech is a very difficult language to learn, and so they wanted to be able to worship in a language that was at least somewhat familiar. And so they set aside the the superficial differences, and they came together around Jesus Christ. And in that setting, I was really forced for myself to kind of examine and think through what are my core essential beliefs? What are the things that I, I cannot sacrifice? And what are the things that are outside of that? They may be important to me, but they're not essential to my faith. And one of the things I realized, I guess, in a really powerful way when I came back to the States and began watching the church in America is church in America often divides over non-essential issues, not essential issues. And we can do that because, especially in the Bible Belt, there's a church in every corner. So you don't like what's being spoken there. You can go on to the next one. Or you don't like that, just go ahead and start your own church. right? But when you're... Uh, overseas, a lot of times you're in a, a minority and often a minority that's persecuted. And so you're forced to come together and decide, no, we need to focus on the things that unite us, the essentials that unite us. This morning, uh, we're back with the church in Corinth, which was a divided church. And it divided for many reasons, but the reasons around which it divided were largely non-essential this morning we're going to talk actually about a non-essential issue. And you may say, well, why spend a whole Sunday service talking about a non-essential? Let's get back to the essentials. Well, I didn't say it's unimportant. It's just non-essential. But it is important because it's an issue that continues to divide the church. And that's the, the spiritual gift of tongues. Okay? A non-essential issue that often divides the church. And so Paul is building his argument to this point. He began in chapter 12. And his thesis is kind of framed by the very beginning of 12 and the end of 14. He says, now concerning spiritual matters or spiritual people or spiritual gifts, you think that you're spiritual. Let me, let me actually help you understand what is genuine spirituality. And focus your mind on things that are essential and off the things that are non-essential. And he wraps up the argument at the end of chapter 14. He says, now, if anyone thinks he's really spiritual, you better have listened to what I just said. You better have listened. And you better understand that essential issues have to remain at the core and they unite you. But the non-essential issues, you need to give freedom and liberty and not divide. And so I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 14 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. 
Paul says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now, the theme of this section is God has given spiritual gifts for the edification of the church, and when they're properly used, they unify the church. Ironically, a spiritual gift is actually dividing the church in this case. He says that's not the purpose of the gifts. They are to unify, to edify, to build up. So when gifts are improperly used, this is what happens. 14.4, the individual builds up himself, not the church. He is speaking into the air. There is confusion. The other person is not strengthened. And there is disorder in the church. When spiritual gifts are improperly used, the church is pulled down. It is torn down rather than built up. It says, on the other hand, when gifts are properly used, he build the, this individual builds up the church. The church is strengthened, 14.5, 14.12. The church is strengthened, 14.26. The church is strengthened, 14.31. All can learn and be encouraged. 14.33, there is peace in the church. Okay? That's Paul's message. Spiritual gifts properly used strengthen the church. And so he says prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues. Why? Because it directly edifies the church. He's not going to say that tongues are bad. He's going to say prophecy is better because it directly edifies the church. No interpretation is necessary and it's less open to abuse or somebody using it for a self-centered reason. So we're going to talk about both prophecy and tongues and the relationship between the two. What does Paul mean by prophecy? Prophecy is speech from God through man to man. Prophecy is speech from God. God is speaking, and he's speaking to that man, but not just to that man, but his intention is through that man he would speak to his people. Using that man's language and culture and background, but nevertheless, when a prophet speaks, he's speaking the word of God. He can say, thus saith the Lord. So there are two purposes of prophecy. The first is that the church would be edified or strengthened. Read with me again chapter 14 and verse 3. Paul says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification or strengthening or building up and exhortation and consolation. Uh, Paul moves from this image of the church as the body of Christ to an image of the church as a building, and it's a building that needs to be strengthened on the firm foundation which is Jesus Christ. And when these gifts are properly used... Especially, especially prophecy, the church is strengthened or built up. Second, it brings conviction or convincing to the non-believer. Chapter 14, verse 24. It says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So prophecy can have, a, have an effect for the building up of the church, but also so a non-believer comes in and, and the secrets of his heart are just uncovered within him. 
He's convicted of sin and realizes he's in, need, he's in need of a Savior and he's drawn to Jesus Christ. So two purposes of prophecy. There are also two types of prophecy. We normally think of this, foretelling. That is a prediction of the future. We think of a, a predictive value in prophecy normally. So, for example, Daniel was given a vision of future kingdoms and the sequence of these future kingdoms that would rise and then fall and rise and then fall, rise and then fall, none of which were in uh, great authority and power at the time of his vision. This was for things yet future. Isaiah was told that the king or the leader of one of those kingdoms, Persia, would actually be named Cyrus long before Cyrus was even born. Okay, a prediction that came true. John, in the book of Revelation, was given a predictive prophecy that really unfolded Daniel's 70th week. This is the nature of that 70th week and the events that will transpire during that 70th week. And then the Davidic kingdom that's been prophesied in the Old Testament, it's actually going to be a thousand year reign. And this is what will transpire to mark the beginning of that millennium and the end of that millennium. Okay, these are predictive things. And that's what we normally think of with prophecy. Uh, There are other prophecies that didn't have such Uh, far-reaching scope for the people of God. They were a little more localized, like in Acts chapter 11. Agabus prophesies that a famine is going to come upon the land, particularly the people of Judea are going to be in need. It's not a a prophecy that necessarily had this enormous value for all time for the people of God, but it was a prediction that carried the weight, thus saith the Lord. God has spoken to a man and through that man to his people. The other kind of prophecy is foretelling. And in fact, uh, if you read the Old Testament prophets, most of the content of what they do is foretelling. It's not really so much predictive as it is that they're, they're taking the law and God is, is speaking to them in a fresh way. And he's saying, uh, here are the implications of the law for this generation, right? I told you, if you obey, I will bless you. But if you disobey, you're going to be disciplined in this way. And so it is fresh revelation, and God is speaking to the prophet. He's saying, prophet, tell the people this. If they obey, they, they'll be blessed. If they disobey, they'll be cursed or disciplined. If they repent, this is what will happen. If they don't repent, this is what will happen. And sometimes the prophet actually steps in. He says, you know what? You're actually at the point of no return. And God says, pack your bags. All right? So there is a, a predictive element, but really the point is that it's, it's fresh and new revelation from God that is proclaiming the significance of the word of God to a unique and new generation. What that means is prophecy is not the same as teaching and preaching. So what I'm doing this morning is I'm taking uh, revelation that's already been given and I'm doing my best to explain and apply it to our generation, to our lives, right? But I can't say, thus saith the Lord, unless I'm actually reading the text, As Mike mentioned earlier, uh, I'm grateful for that. He reminded you that I make mistakes. And uh, (laughs) hopefully uh, you don't hear tons of them. But I can't speak with the same level of authority as a prophet would speak. Prophecy is always true all of the time because it is God speaking. And God doesn't lie, that is, make mistakes on purpose, nor does he lie or make mistakes accidentally. So all prophecy is always true all of the time. So three qualities of prophecy. First, it is inerrant. It is without error. If prophet speaks, it's true. Let me illustrate. Uh, imagine that you needed to rent office space, and so you went to the leasing agent 
of the office complex, and he said, well, where, where do you want to rent? What floor would you like to be on? So, well, really, I have no preference about which floor I rent space on. And the leasing agent said, well, you may want to think about that because with some of the floors, you know, they're really well constructed, but we kind of ran into some budget problems, and we hired professionals for 90% of the floors, but the others were put together by fifth graders. And so we handed them duct tape and glue sticks and string, so, you know, not, they're not all equally reliable. What's the problem? If there's one unreliable floor in the entire building, then the whole building could come down. And which floor is that? Right? You open the word of God and you say, well, I know that 90% of it is true. But what's the 10% that's not true? If there's 10% that's not reliable, then none of it is reliable. So it is with prophecy. It is all true or it is all useless. And God says, no, the word of God is true and it is always true because God is true. So the word of God is inerrant. Related to that, it is infallible. That is, it won't fail. It will come true. Whatever God says through his prophets will in fact occur. And then third, it is authoritative. So again, when a prophet speaks, he says, thus saith the Lord. This is absolute truth that guides and directs the content of your faith and the actions of your faith. It is authoritative. Now, consequently, prophecy must be tested. I want you to read with me chapter 14 and verse 29. Paul writes, but let two or three prophets speak and then let others pass judgment. Okay? Uh, Old Testament prophets had their words evaluated. Other prophets and priests and elders of the land would evaluate the veracity of a prophet's statements. Paul says the prophets in the New Testament, they too must be evaluated. Have they spoken the truth? In the Old Testament, if a prophet's words did not come true, what happened? They'd stone him. So be very careful when you say, thus saith the Lord, right? It better be a word from God. Same thing in the New Testament. The elders were responsible to judge the words of the prophets and to evaluate if they were in fact true. So notice what Paul says, chapter 14, verse 34. He says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. If you joined us for 1 Corinthians 11, you will remember that Paul said, when a woman prays or prophesies in the worship service. But now in chapter 14, he says, no women are not permitted to speak. So how do you reconcile these? Chapter 14, what he's talking about is judging the prophets. And only the elders have the authority to judge the prophets in church. And so what's happening in the Corinthian church is that there are women stepping out of their role and not allowing the elders to evaluate and judge the words of the prophets, but instead they are interrupting and they're causing confusion about the authoritative structure in the church. Only the elders have responsibility. Paul is not saying that the women never participated and never prayed or prophesied or spoke at all. It's not a blanket statement about silence. It's a, it's a statement about judging the prophet's authority in the church. Okay? All prophecy has to be evaluated. That means that the elders are responsible for that. So, big question is this then. Is the spiritual gift of prophecy still given and used today in the church? Right? Is prophecy still around? And I would say this. It depends on how you are using the term. Okay, let me explain. Uh, first of all, Scripture is closed. Okay, what you have here in front of you in your hands is the complete Word of God. 
The canon is closed. The canon is closed. When John wrote the book of Revelation, that was the last book written. He was the last apostle. He died near the end of the first century. And he said, this is it. It's closed. There is no more. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, The foundation of the church has been laid. It was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. This is the foundation of the church, the written revelation of God. That is, specifically, God's Son, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. And he became Messiah for the world. He took on human flesh so that he could live amongst us and, and show us the glory of God in human flesh and then die on our behalf as a payment for all of our sins, all men and women of all times, that he'd be raised from the dead, demonstrating God accepted that sacrifice, and then he'd be exalted to God's right hand. He would send the Spirit as the down payment, the first installment of the future fulfillment of a new covenant. And within that context, he would form a mystery form of his kingdom, which is the church. Jews and Gentiles on equal footing in the church. And someday he would return and he would establish his kingdom upon earth. And Paul says that foundation has been laid and it is established and it's not being laid again because the apostles laid that for you. And there are no more apostles because an apostle had to see the resurrected Jesus Christ with his eyes and no one else has done that or can do that in the future. So no more apostles, no more written scripture. You have the full and complete word of God in front of you. But what about non-scriptural prophecy or predictions? So, for example, you know, Agabus, predicts a, he predicts a, uh, a famine. Later on, he'll predict that Paul will be bound if he goes back to Jerusalem and he'll be taken captive uh, by the Romans and put in prison. He predicts that. There are certainly other predictions in the early church that didn't make their way into Scripture. Right? Because there were, there were many prophets and prophetesses that were functioning in the early church. What about today? Are there still predictions that could be given from God through a man or woman to the church and they could say, thus saith the Lord? I would say, I don't know. Could be. Because God can speak however God chooses to speak, right? And he has spoken in this way in the past. God is free to speak that way as well in the future. Uh, My opinion is this. My opinion is, is that it's less likely in our particular setting because we have the Word of God. So it's less necessary. In fact, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is relating his time when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And he saw glorified Jesus, and he saw Moses, and he saw Elijah, and he said, wow, this is amazing, right? Let's camp out. Let's pitch three tents, and let's just stay here in this moment. But later in his life, when he wrote 2 Peter, he said, you know what? We have something even better than a mountaintop eyewitness experience, and it is the word of God. He said, we have the prophetic word made more certain, a more sure and certain thing than what one person saw. So in my opinion, in our setting, it is less likely. I would say it is more likely in a setting which the church is not established, and they don't yet have a Bible. Okay, I would think that it'd be more likely in a setting like that. I think it would be, it's more likely and actually certain as the end of days begin to be unleashed. In fact, Joel chapter 2 says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your old women will see visions. When God begins that movement of, of unleashing the end times events so that his son will return and establish his kingdom upon earth, 
you're going to see a, f- a fresh wave of the miraculous. Okay? That doesn't mean that it's impossible in this day. So if somebody came up to me and they said, hey, Brian, I, gotta, I have, I have a, a, a prophecy. God spoke to me and I have a word to deliver the church. I would say, go talk to the elders. <laughs> so I just, you don't talk to me about that. You go talk to the elders. Now, we have uh, several elders who are just added to the board. It's their first term serving on the elder board. And some of you are maybe sitting out there and you're saying, wait a second, that's not what I signed up for, actually. And I just want you to know that on your job description, you didn't read it, but in the fine print, there's a bullet that says, other duties as assigned. Evaluate the prophets, right? So if you have a word that comes from the Lord to the church, just as in the New Testament, you submit that to the authority in our church, which is our elder board, uh, knowing that um, I'm, not the, I'm not the ultimate authority in our church. Right? The pastors are not the ultimate authority. The pastors are under the authority of the elders. We live in submission to the elders because everyone needs authority in their life. And so we submit to them. A prophet comes, prophet submits to them. Okay? So my opinion, it's possible Less likely in our particular setting. What about the fourth telling ministry of prophecy? My opinion, again, is that that is largely subsumed under these ministries of teaching and preaching. Uh, however, I do believe that the spiritual gifts of, of wisdom and knowledge and discernment are still in effect today. In other words, the primary way that God speaks to his people today is the written and sure word of God. But God also speaks through creation, right? Natural revelation, he speaks through conscience. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through other believers. And I think the Spirit of God speaks directly at times to his people. He, he puts an impression on their minds. This is the way to go. Walk in it. And I've known people who have that spiritual gift of wisdom and discernment and knowledge. They see uh, situations and they understand people in a way that is supernatural. And so God can speak that way. How does he speak primarily? Primarily through the word. Primarily through the word. But the difference is, when you study, or when I teach, our interpretations are not inerrant. In fact, as you sit and you listen to me teach the word of God, you need to be going before God with your Bible and the Holy Spirit guiding you and discerning, is what I say consistent with the word of God? Because it's not, I, I cannot say to you, Thus says the Lord, unless I'm actually reading the text to you. I try to do my best to discern the word of God and teach it accurately, but it doesn't come with the authority of thus says the Lord. Only prophecy does. So what's Paul's point? His point is this. Okay? Prophecy is better than tongues, says, because prophecy is, is direct. No interpretation required, less likely to be, be abused. What he does not say is that tongues is bad. In fact, I'm going to argue tongues is a good gift from the Lord, but it was misused in the Corinthian church. Okay? All spiritual gifts coming from God are good gifts because God only gives good gifts, right? So read with me again, chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets. So that the church may receive edifying. That's the point. Verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? 
Yet even lifeless things, for example, a flute or a harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will get himself ready for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of tongues or languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks to me will be a barbarian. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? Well, I will pray with my spirit and with my mind. I will pray with the spirit. I will sing with the spirit. I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, okay, in an unintelligible way, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, that is the one without that gift, how will he say amen at your giving of thanks since he doesn't even know what you're saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. What does Paul mean by tongues? Tongues is a Greek word, glossa. It can refer literally to the tongue or figuratively, to a language. Tongue, when used figuratively, is always, always a, a language, a real language. Okay? Something that would, uh, could be broken down into uh, grammar and syntax and morphology. It's, it's a tool of communication. Okay? That's what a tongue is, figuratively or metaphorically. So the spiritual gift of tongues is the ability to speak from God in a language unknown to the speaker. Okay? Nevertheless, a real language could be a human language, language on earth. Acts chapter 2, the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites all hear God's praises being lifted up in their own local languages. Real language. Could be an angelic language. Paul talks about that in chapter 13. Angels have languages, don't they? Angels speak to one another. They speak to God. I guess they don't speak English. I'm just guessing. I mean, you know, maybe you could argue Hebrew or they've got their own angelic language, which they speak that maybe someday we will get to learn. God will give to us, okay? But the point is, it's a language, okay? It's not, it's not just babbling, right? Or as Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, don't utter meaningless repetition. It's language, okay? It's, it's, real, it's a real tool of communication. Two purposes for the spiritual gift of tongues. First, to authenticate the presence of God. Read me chapter 14, verse 22. Paul says, So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So tongues is a sign for the unbelievers. So think back to Acts chapter 2, the first time that we saw uh, the gift of tongues operational in the church. It's the day of Pentecost, and you have Jews who've come in to Jerusalem from all over the known world at that time, and they all speak their local languages, but they also speak almost certainly Aramaic and Greek. Okay? On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out upon the apostles, and the apostles begin to speak praises to God, probably talking about Jesus and his death and burial and resurrection 
praising God for that. And these people begin to hear this message in their own local languages. But then Peter quiets everyone down and he says this. He says, men, I I need to tell you why this is happening. And Peter just speaks at that point in time in one language, probably Aramaic. And they all understand, all of them. Why? Because they're not Americans who only barely speak one language, right? They speak their local language and they speak Greek and they speak Aramaic and there may have been other languages they spoke as well. My point is this. Tongues was not necessary for communication on the day of Pentecost. Tongues was poured out for authentication. God is present. God is present. And God is moving and God is speaking. So, first and primary reason that God gave the spiritual gift of tongues was for authentication. Second, it is given to strengthen the church. Chapter 14, verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, that all things be done for edification. Now, you can't read and understand 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 if you don't write across the top of the page, sarcasm. Okay? As Paul is very sarcastic with these people who are using spiritual gifts for their own self-edification. That is exactly the opposite reason God has given spiritual gifts. And so he says many things with, with an edge to him, with a bit of sarcasm. You know, you're just speaking into the air. You're speaking to yourself. The other person isn't edified. What's the point of all this? What's the point? The other person is, in fact, not edified unless there is interpretation. Okay? Interpretation is always required. And so he gives a couple of analogies. He says, look, if it's a, you know, a flute or a harp and the instrument isn't tuned or it's not playing the same chords with, with, with the other instruments, it just sounds like noise. It's, it's cacophony. You know, our, our worship team shows up about 7 o'clock every Sunday morning and they tune up and they make sure they're all playing in the same key. Otherwise, they begin to play and you go, oh, that, that's unpleasant. <laughs> That hurts my ears. I can't worship with that. Or the person who's got the bugle and he needs to assemble the entire army, if he doesn't play the right notes in the right sequence, nobody assembles for war. They just stay in bed. So, So it is with tongues. If you're speaking in an unintelligible language and no one interprets, what is the point? The other person is not edified. So, verse 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue... It should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. In other words, no interpretation, stay silent, otherwise there's confusion, not edification in the church. No interpretation, he says in verse 13, well then pray for interpretation. Why? So that the other can be edified in the church. Because if there is no interpretation, he says something even worse can happen, and that is a non-believer can enter into your midst, and he's going to think that you're crazy. Verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're mad? What's happening here? Well, everybody's erupting, and they're all speaking in tongues, and they're not waiting for one another and not waiting for interpretation. The unbeliever comes in, and he goes, this is chaos. Well, Paul says... God is not a God of chaos. God removes chaos and he creates order so that you can think right and speak right and worship right. Now that same rule 
applies to prophecy as well. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, then let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. In other words, speak your prophecy and then sit down and let the next speak and then let judgment occur on the prophecy. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets because God is not a God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of all the saints for all times, Paul says, this is, this is how worship should occur. There should be order. Now, again, he is not saying that we should, should fail to enthusiastically love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and passionately worship. But he's saying in your passionate worship, When it comes to your instruction, let it be done with order and not with chaos so that people can learn and be instructed and edified so they can think rightly and consequently worship rightly about God. Because God is not a God of chaos and disorder. God is a God of order, not confusion. So, back to the second big question. Then is the spiritual gift of tongues still given and is it still operational today? couple observations for you. First is this. There is no biblical evidence that proves tongues has ceased. That God isn't using the gift of tongues or he can't use the gift of tongues for the church. You can't go to chapter and verse and say, thus saith the Lord, no more tongues. He can't. So I don't want to be dogmatic where God is not dogmatic. In fact, Paul says to the church, don't forbid the, pe- the speaking in tongues. Okay? Now at the same time, you see historical patterns of the miraculous. Okay, and, and what happens to us as believers sometimes is that we want to demand that God work in a certain way at a certain point in time, but he's not subject to us, we're subject to him. And one of the things you'll see in redemptive history is that there are periods of time where God just pours out his spirit in miraculous ways and periods of time where he doesn't. And God knows why he does, God knows why he doesn't. So if you look back at biblical history and the Exodus, Something new and radical was occurring, right? God was redeeming his people out of Egypt and he was going to establish them as a theocratic kingdom upon earth and he was giving them new revelation that is the law. And so Moses performed so many miracles. Uh, Joshua didn't perform as many miracles. There were some military miracles, but we don't see that quite so much. Uh, The judges, we don't see so many miracles occurring, a few here and there. Saul was first king of Israel. He prophesied, but just once. And then he didn't prophesy ever again. It's a new movement in redemptive history. Israel had its first king. And most of the kings didn't do the miraculous, even the good kings. Josiah was a great king. He didn't do miraculous. Uh, He did not write any scripture. Uh, Some of the prophets did miraculous things. In fact, uh, the first two that really kind of established the prophetic era, Elijah and Elisha, lots of miracles. But as far as we know, uh, Nahum and Habakkuk and Haggai didn't do a lot of miracles. A lot of miracles by Jesus. New revelation. New new moment in the redemptive program of God. Uh, The apostles, a lot of miracles. But what's interesting, if you look at Paul's life, he gets to the very end of his life, right? And he writes one more book, 2 Timothy. And at the very end of 2 Timothy, so he's only, he only writes, I think, two verses after this. So very last writing, he makes this comment. He says, Trophimus, I had to leave sick in Miletus. Okay, little observation here. 
If I'm Trophimus and I'm laying on my sick bed, I go, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, remember you've healed the, the sick and you've raised the dead. Could you have the spiritual gift of healing? Come on over and do your stuff, you know, do that spiritual gift stuff with me. Paul says, no, I just left town and he was sick. One of my dear, dear coworkers that I loved and valued. Why? Because spiritual gifts are gifts from God. They belong to God. They're stewardships that we have. And we use them as God directs and only as God directs. God's way, God's timing, always. Right? And so if God chooses at a particular point in time to pour out his spirit in a very miraculous way, then we need to evaluate that and then embrace it. And if God says no, in this point in time, in this area of, of, of the history of, of redemption or your church, that's not what I'm going to do. So be it. God is in control. Okay? God is in control of these things. So. What I would expect then is that it's more likely to see the miraculous where there is no church or they do not yet have the word of God. So as the church is being established and as the word of God is being translated and given to the people to authenticate it, perhaps God would once again do the miraculous. I would expect as well that in time once the church is established and the word of God is accepted, that you might not see as much of the miraculous. It's possible. I also expect that as end times begin to be unfolded, you're once again going to see more of the miraculous. Joel chapter 2. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men and your old women will dream dreams and have visions. I have a a close friend who uh, had a vision of Jesus Christ. He was Hindu, and that was one of the events that brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. Tristan and I just read a a book about uh, the gospel as it's moving into uh, Iran, into Persia. And Persian men and women are ha- dreaming dreams and having visions. And Jesus Christ is showing up to them. They don't have access to a Bible or to church often. God can speak how God chooses to speak. That's up to God. I expect it less where we are in the established church because we have the word of God. Okay? We're less in need of authenticating signs. Not to say we don't crave them. <laughs> you know? We, we really dislike the mundane, but we love the miraculous, right? I mean, many times I've said, God, just give me an, an audible voice, right? My friend had a vision of Jesus. I want a vision of Jesus. It hasn't happened. It hasn't been given. We crave it and we long for it, right? If I could just have a Mount of Transfiguration experience, then really I probably would never even sin again because I'd have that experience, right? And I wouldn't actually have to walk by faith because I'd have sight, God says no. Sometimes he says yes, but sometimes he says no. You're going to walk by faith, not by sight. So I don't want to be dogmatic where scripture is not dogmatic. Um, We could see sign gifts here. We could see uh, a lot of different miraculous things. I pray for miracles. I pray for healing. Uh, I think that God does heal. It doesn't necessarily mean he's pouring out the spiritual gift of healing even when he does heal. But he tells his people to pray. When you're sick, call the elders. Let them anoint you with oil and pray for healing. Pray. Because God can and sometimes does. So what does that mean practically? Well, I won't be surprised if somebody comes up after the service and they say, you know what, I have a spiritual gift of tongues and I use a spiritual gift of tongues. And I'd say, you know, fine. Just I encourage you, use it as Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 14. That would be my exhortation. Right? So two or three speak, 
There's always interpretation. Subject the tongue and the interpretation of the authority of the elders. And as Paul says, with the church all gathered, so I'd rather speak five words with my mind directly than 10,000 with the tongue. So that's going to be what we emphasize here is something that everyone can understand immediately and directly, right? But I'm not going to say to that person, no, no, no. I'm just going to say, use it as Paul outlined, right? Use it as Paul outlined. And be in submission to the authority that God has placed in your life. Now, this, I, I acknowledge this has been really, really heavy teaching time this morning, okay? So let me, uh, let me see if I can just get practical for a moment or two. Um, you may have listened to this and said, man, Brian, you nailed it. I agree with everything you just said. That's happened once or twice, you know, where people agree with everything, but usually not. I usually get emails, I don't agree with that, right? You might say, no, Brian, th- those spiritual gifts are in effect today. They're always in effect, and we need to see a lot more of those things in the church. I disagree with you. Or you might say, no way, man, all those things are done. Slam the door, shut the door. Those things never occur in the church today. God has, has cut those things off. He can't use them anymore. You might disagree with me in that way. I want to remind you of one thing. Spiritual gift of tongues is a non-essential issue, people. It is a non-essential issue. What's more important is for us to think through how do we approach issues that divide. So, I want to remind you of the statement of Augustine. He said this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom. In all, th- in all things, charity, by which he meant love. Okay. In essentials, unity. Remember, as we said two weeks ago, uh, unity is not the goal Unity is the result. So when we are all pursuing Christ together, we experience unity. So you need to understand what are the essentials of your faith that you cannot sacrifice. Those are the people with whom you can have the deepest fellowship because you're unified. What are the essentials of your faith? You know, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. The Trinity. Right? Substitutionary atonement. Christ died for your sins and my sins. The, the word of God is inerrant and infallible and authoritative. Salvation is by grace through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. No works added. Those are the essentials. And you need to not compromise on those. You need to fight for those. In fact, remember, the Apostle Paul got into the Apostle Peter's grill in Galatians because Peter was adding works to the gospel. And he said, those are fighting words. I'm going to dress you down in front of everyone because that's what you need. Wow. One apostle going after another apostle. Why? Because the gospel was at stake. And there are some churches that will teach that unless you have a spiritual gift of tongues, you are not saved. That's not true because Paul says, some are apostles, some are prophets, but they're not all apostles or prophets. Some speak in tongues and some don't speak in tongues. God decides who gets what, what gifts, right? So we don't make that a standard of salvation, nor is it a standard of maturity. Because some may have the gift and some may not have the gift, okay? Then you're adding a legalistic element to the faith, okay? So I can't participate in the gospel work there. But I have friends who... Uh, who, who practice the gift of tongues, and I love them. They're wonderful. They're wonderful friends, okay? Non-essentials, liberty. It's a non-essential. You believe that tongues is an effect, and you have that gift, and you practice the gift, okay? It's, that's a non-essential. Might be a really important issue to you or to me, but it's still a non-essential. End times events. How are things going to play out in the future, 
non-essential people. It's going to happen. <laughs> that's, that's the essential. It's going to happen because God said it. How's it all going to play out? I don't know. I don't know. Practical issues. How should you school your kids? Homeschool, private school, public school? Non-essential issue. You have your opinions, but you grant liberty because it is a non-essential. What are the essentials? What are the non-essentials? The essentials must unify us and we share in the work of the gospel together. Non-essentials, we love. Okay? But we love not just people who are even in our camp. Jesus says, love your enemies. Even those who are enemies to the gospel, love them. Love them. Let, let God work out the final word on all issues. Let God be the judge But you love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, because our role is to demonstrate the love of Christ for all. In fact, that's really where Paul has taken this whole argument. Remember, he says, uh, he says, "Here, here are the spiritual gifts, and you're all gifted, and you're all necessary and needful. Respect one another, learn from one another. But remember this, there's something way greater than spiritual gifts. It's called love. Because prophecy will cease. You know why prophecy will cease? Because we'll be in the presence of God, and God will speak to us face-to-face. We don't need any prophets anymore. Tongues will cease. We'll all be speaking the same language and we'll speak directly to God. He says even faith will cease. Why? Because we'll have sight. We will actually see God. So we won't have to have faith in what we do not see. Hope will cease because hope will be fulfilled, will be in the presence of God. All these things will be done away with. But he says, there's one thing that's greater than all, and this one thing will will remain, and it is love. Why? Because God is love. God is love. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And he says, now, go out and love not just your friends, not just the people you agree about everything with. No, not just those, even the people who are enemies of the gospel or the people who harm you or wrong you, those who persecute you, you choose instead to act in their life for their blessing and their good to point them to Jesus Christ. Men and women, that's the mission of the church. Okay, that's that's the essential. So we don't want to divide over non-essentials. We want to unite around Christ and remember, this is why we as the church exist in the world today is to point people to Jesus Christ. So let's stay focused. Okay. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would protect us from being distracted. I pray that you would protect us from division. I pray that you would teach us to forgive as we have been forgiven. I pray that the world would look in and see the way that we love one another and serve one another in spite of all of our differences because we're united around Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that they would be drawn to the light of Jesus Christ, who is your glory. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week loving one another and shining light for Christ. We'll see you next week.